Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. This podcast is designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know, all in 20 minutes. I am your host, Hazel Baker, Qualified London Tour Guide and CEO of LondonGuidedWalks.co.uk. Show notes plus photos and recommended reading can be found on each associated episode's webpage. Simply go to LondonGuidedWalks.co.uk forward slash podcast. Don't forget, if you enjoy what we do, then please rate and review. It warms the cockles of my heart to read your appreciation of this labour of love. Get that cup of tea, put your feet up and enjoy. Joining me in the studio today is Jessica Storschuk, historian behind the History and Culture blog and historian about town. She studies the history of monarchy as well as the history of ballet and Christmas. And it is ballet that we are talking about today, specifically in Covent Garden. So hello, Jessica. Hello. Thank you so much for having me today. And where does your love of ballet come from? I started dancing as a child and I danced all the way through until I went to university um, and I did my vocational exams, uh, but then I stopped obviously for university and I started taking classes again with the Royal Winnipeg Ballet here. And as an historian, of course, you want to find out the history of the things you love. So ballet history is a perfect fit for me. First off then, what about the general history of ballet in Covent Garden? What makes it such a special place? I think that Covent Garden is so important in the history of English ballet because so much has happened there and so many notable figures in English ballet history have been centered there that you can't ignore it. And I know that a lot of people in general kind of write off Covent Garden as very touristy. But if you love ballet, you have to go there. Uh, And obviously, if people don't know, the Royal Opera House is there. And in addition to the Opera House, you can find nods to ballet all around Covent Garden. You can find one of Margot Fontaine's blue plaques. You can see the Young Dancer statue. So I think whether or not people realize it, there's just so much there. I think that is a really good point. And what I love about Covent Garden is I, I lived there for, for over five years and you see all the, the young dancers with their buns going for rehearsals. Obviously, you've got Pineapple Studios nearby. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, they do ballet, but of course, lots of um, other funky stuff as well. And to hear the, the music, especially the piano music, wafting through the, the streets, the arts is, is living and breathing in London, It's uh, especially in Covent Garden. It's rather fantastic. It is. And if you're walking by the Royal Ballet School at the right time, you can also hear class rehearsals happening a little bit. Um, And you just hear, you hear the piano music drifting. And it's one of those things that I always make sure I don't have any earphones in so I can always hear it. And it's a nice kind of call to that. So you mentioned Fontaine. I live two doors away from from her. Well, the plaque anyway. Uh, So tell us a little bit about her. Dame Margot Fontaine is often described as the most talented dancer of her generation, 
But in my opinion, and a lot of people's opinion, she's one of the most talented dancers to ever have graced this stage. She had a sense of musicality and a sense of movement that you rarely see in a dancer. And there are some incredibly talented dancers on the Royal Opera House stage right now um, that are fantastic. But Fontaine just has a magical quality. And when even when you watch recordings of her dancing and they're now 60, 70, sometimes 80 years old, it's still incredible to watch. And she just captivates. Um, and she also was essentially a rock star in Britain for much of her life. And she was popular. Nowadays, people don't really know who dancers are, but everyone knew her name. And not just in Britain, across the world, she was a fashion icon. People, women wanted to emulate her. Uh, dancers everywhere. If you speak to a certain generation of ballet teachers, and yours might have been also, but they always reference wanting to be Margot Fontaine because she was the one that everyone looked up to. But she was just an incredible dancer who led a very interesting life off the stage as well. Any London stories there? There's some crazy things in Panama and some crazy things in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> London seemed to be her kind of I don't want to use the word oasis because I don't know that her life was ever calm, but London was where she went to dance and to do her work and to settle down into things. And then when she went elsewhere, things went awry. So I think, although London's a very exciting place, it almost seemed to be the opposite for her. It was her home base. It was where she knew what to expect. I think uh, I think you've got a point there. Um, also, with um, Fontaine, I think it's really quite amazing that she she actually retired the same year that I was born and she was 60 so to have such a long career that is extraordinary in the ballet world even now we have as dancers we have so much more science behind us and most uh, companies and schools will have several doctors, physiotherapists, athletic therapists, chiropractors, you name it, they're on staff and they're to help immediately. But they didn't have a lot of that. And she danced for so long. And she also, one of the fascinating things about Fontaine is that her body as a ballet dancer was okay. If you looked at her, you wouldn't have thought that's the ideal ballet dancer. But she wasn't in... I would say like the most amazing shape, but she just kept dancing. And nowadays there are some dancers, uh, Evelyn Hart here in Canada has will periodically dance um, in her late 50s and early 60s, but it's a very limited dance, whereas Margot Fontaine was still dancing full ballets and full on point. They were not character roles. She wasn't the mother in Sleeping Beauty that is on stage and overseas. She was fully dancing Swan Lake and Giselle and full classical ballets. It was crazy, but I don't know how she did it. I think it's honestly because ballet was kind of her refuge and she didn't know anything else. And then also her husband needed her to make money. So if you know your husband's like, I need money, you keep going as long as you can. <laughs> True. Good point. As a ballet dancer, you don't just need flexibility and musicality. You also need 
strength. I mean, not just physical strength, but an inner strength to carry you through the various levels of exhaustion and pain. So, and part of the reason why I stopped dancing for a while is I have arthritis from ballet. So I 100% at 20 was waking up and had to wait and let my feet kind of get their feeling and make sure they were under me okay. So I often, when I'm studying Fontaine, I have no idea how she did it. And to do that full time and not only, she wasn't only dancing in Covent Garden, she toured all the time. And although they had uh, air travel and everything, like still traveling to Australia in the 1960s is still quite a trip. And she was still dancing full out. And she, I don't know if I'd call it a mask, but she was always performing. You never saw that pain on her face. And occasionally, if you see a lot of ballet, every once in a while, you will see a dancer get injured on stage and it's awful. And you see it slip for a little bit and I don't blame them at all because we all would. We're all human. But she never did. It's incredible. And she had so much turmoil, both in her dance career and off. And she stayed so composed in her dancing. And it's just incredible. And just a quick reminder to our listeners that uh, photos of the Fontaine plaque and indeed some of the ballet sculptures that we have in London are on our show notes. And you can find those at londonguardedwalks.co.uk forward slash podcast and then select episode number 81, Ballet in London. And why do you think it's Covent Garden where the, the, the ballet happens? Because Covent Garden Opera House, from my knowledge of history, which might be different to yours, is that the ballet was used in between acts of the opera. The main, the main piece was the, the, the opera itself. So, and the ballet was just a, a little bit of an entertainment to, to wake the audience up. So how did it progress from... That I suppose uh, uh, an old uh, river dance uh, to the the main um, ballets that we know now. So in ballet in general in Europe in the 19th century, it really starts developing into its own art form that stands on its own with full length ballets. Uh, we see it in France, obviously with ballet, but we see it in Russia a lot, um, and I think. One of the big uh, pushes behind ballet kind of establishing itself in Covent Garden is that Ninette de Valois, who is kind of the mother of English ballet, she established what would go on to be the Royal Ballet. She uh, was in Serge Diaghilev's Ballet Russe, and the Ballet Russe traveled all over in the early 20th century, including London. And audiences love them. Uh, Cecil Beaton has a great book called Ballet, where he discusses his memories of seeing uh, the ballet in Ballet Russe in London. It's a really interesting book. Um, but it kind of took hold. So audiences in London really got a feeling for ballet. And they'd watched it prior. Um, we see a young future Queen Victoria loved going to the ballet as a teenager. So we see it. But in the early 20th century, we see a bigger um, appetite for ballet standing on its own. And then uh, in the 1930s, um, so we had the Vic Wells Ballet, also known as Sadler's Wells, which then became the Royal Ballet in the 1950s. So 
it was establishing, and then I'm sure you well know, uh, the opera house was used as a dance hall in the Second World War. And then after, they decided to establish uh, the Royal Opera there. And then in the, they invited the ballet company to also be resident. So they knew then that it was they wanted both. Um, and they do share the stage. And to this day, it's a very balanced schedule um, between opera and ballet. They fit so well together. Um, but they stood on their own. And I think the other big factor that helped establish Covent Garden is that with the Royal Ballet being there in the 1950s, that was, well, it was the golden age, quote unquote, for a lot of things, but it was the golden age for ballet. So Fontaine, but not only Fontaine, Moira Shearer and other dancers, they were all incredibly popular. People knew who they were. So it was a place to go and be seen. Princess Margaret famously loved going to the ballet and would go all the time. I don't think Her Majesty is quite so much a fan of going to the opera and the ballet because we don't see her going very often. But Prince Charles still goes um, quite a bit. And apparently the Duchess of Cambridge will occasionally go with him. But it was a really popular place to go. And the ballet specifically. They did go to the opera and they all enjoyed that. But the ballet was a, a very happening and cool place to be in the 1950s and 60s. And I wish we would go back to that. But I think that's kind of what cemented it in Covent Garden specifically, as opposed to anywhere else in London. Amazing. I don't go to the ballet as often as I should. And I don't know what it is because I love I love the ballet. The first ballet I ever saw, I remember I was nine years old. It was Swan Lake. And the black swan, uh, the, the, the white swan runs off and then the black swan appears on the other side. And it was all very dramatic. And I remember loving the theatre, um, you know, the theatrics of it. And it's all very over the top and very romantic in, in a way, in a softer way than a lot of operas are. But now I don't know what it is. I mean, I enjoy watching ballet online. I've watched it virtually, you know, when we were in lockdown, I found that a wonderful uh, way of just escaping. But I think Matthew Bourne has kind of spoiled it for me. The music isn't live. I appreciate recordings and that they allow ballet companies to do more and to perhaps tour places and go places that they normally wouldn't be able to. Because again, the golden age of touring is gone, so they don't bring orchestras with them anymore, which I understand why. But I fully agree and I'm spoiled. So <laughs> fun fact, because I'm from Winnipeg, Canada, we have the Royal Winnipeg Ballet here. And we actually got our Royal Charter from the Queen before the Royal Ballet did. So a little nod to my hometown. But I am very spoiled in that we have a live, um, the symphony orchestra plays with them. So it is very jarring and occasionally there will be productions that don't have an orchestra for whatever reason, because it's not always appropriate. But it is different, and especially if you're used to the full classical ballet with a full symphony orchestra, it does kind of feel like a piece is missing. So I always, I'm with you on that. I love feeling the, the vibrations of the sound through my body. And it just helps me levitate into a, a new state of being. And and I just don't get that with just music coming from speakers. 
it's not the same. And like I always – I also get a rush when the conductor comes out, the beginning of each act, and everyone just perks up and looks. And there is footage – actually, because I was watching – Fontaine documentary this morning. And there's footage of performances from the 1950s where everyone's still like, they still got that rush from the conductor then. And it's one of those things that I think just unites us as an audience everywhere. And it's not the same when you press play on a recording. So what big names on the London stage, ballet wise, would you say had that particular quality? So Fontaine, I think, when you watch her perform, and obviously she passed away when I was a few years old, so I obviously, I never saw her dance, but she emoted so well without being over the top, which I find is a hard balance to strike because some dancers are incredibly emotive and depending on the role, it works really well and you want someone who's very out there. But then for some, it kind of detracts. Uh, right now, I would say Lauren Cuthbertson with the Royal Ballet is definitely one that I think she balances emoting with um, an ethereal quality, much like Fontaine. Not quite the same because every dancer is different, but she does that so well. And she just has, I find, the same carriage and she kind of floats with it. Um, and she carries that throughout all of her performances. And much like Fontaine, a number of different roles. And one that I think Lauren shows it really well in. If anyone knows her for anything, it's probably her role as Alice um, in the new Wonderland production. And I think she really reminded me of Fontaine, not necessarily in how she was dancing, just her overall carriage and just... Um, performance. I thought she was wonderful. Another name that sparks interest for me, um, particularly for, for ballet in London, is Anna Pavlova. Yes. What did she have that captured people's imaginations and what other dancers didn't? So similar to Fontaine, she emoted really, really well. And she worked really well with tragic roles. That's why you often nine times out of 10 on any surviving discussions or image that you commonly see, it's usually a reference to Swan Lake. Um, she kind of nailed it and made that what it is. Um, and she just, she kind of is that role. I know that a lot of dancers get associated with it, but if you know ballet history, you automatically go to Pavlova. But people loved watching her. She was another dancer that people couldn't take their eyes off of. And the other reason why I think she's endured, she was kind of an odd person. She had pet swans at one point and she was she was a character. Um and I think she was a true artist and just embraced it. So I think people kind of knew they were getting the quote unquote full package when they saw her. And she was known around the world, which in the early 20th century is pretty impressive because most people probably would have known the royal family, politicians, and maybe a few other public figures, but she was pretty well known around the world. Um, and so, and she, again, a Russian. So if you're a Russian in the early 20th century and an incredible dancer, that's also going to give you name recognition. So she, uh, she was another incredible that the ballet world will not forget. 
For anyone venturing to the area of Victoria here in London, then look up to the top of the cupola of Victoria Palace Theatre, for there you will see a golden ballerina statue of Anna Pavlova, and she appeared on the stage there at the newly opened theatre in 1911. And if you want to know more about Anna Pavlova in London, then check out our latest blog post. All you have to go to is londonguardedwalks.co.uk forward slash blog, and I'll also include it, a link there in the show notes. The most famous ballerina statue in London, I suppose, is by Enzo Plazotto behind the Royal Opera House. And I know, Jessica, that you like this one. Tell us why. So I love the Young Dancer statue um, because I – so I first saw a picture of it when I was eight or nine. I had no idea where it was. It was just there. And when you see the phone boxes in the background, you know it's London most likely, but you don't have anything else. And it's just kind of tucked away there. We're so lucky in London. We've got a number of Enzo Plazotta statues in London. Most of them are dancing. One that people miss is the male dancer on Millbank and it's like he is springing across the Thames. It's right by the Tate Britain. Yes. But this one, she's putting, I assume, assume on her shoes, not taking them off. Yeah. Because she looks quite calm rather than exhausted. It's not an action shot. But I think it talks about that that inner state of mind. It's very still, which you don't expect from a dancer. No, and it definitely, it reminds me as a dancer of especially before class when you're tying your point shoes and you're getting ready and you're mentally going through everything. What were the corrections I got last class? What am I working on? What are we doing today? Are we doing partnering? What's happening? And so it's an incredible piece of art and it really captures it well. Um, and I find there are – Degas' dancer statue is the other one that people gravitate towards in terms of ballet statues. But I find the young dancer really captures it, but in such a quiet way that it's not expected, but it's really beautiful. And I've included some photos of the statues that we've been talking about. And you can go and see those in the show notes, londonguidedwalks.co.uk forward slash podcast and click on episode 82, Ballet in London. And if someone was going to the ballet for the very first time, what do people expect and also look forward to at the ballet? My reminder to people before they go to the ballet, because I get a lot of people reaching out to me, is to remember that one, there is no language in dance. So you don't need to worry about not knowing another language or anything. Um, And two, I always recommend starting with a story ballet. So there is a plot to follow. So you kind of have an idea of what you're looking for. There are some beautiful abstract ballets. Uh, Balanchine's Jewels is gorgeous, but my one friend went and each act is a different jewel and there is no plot. And she was like, I was trying to follow the story and I couldn't find it. There was no story. It's just dance. Um, But if you go to a story ballet, it's a bit easier. And one tip that I always recommend is I can guarantee it in almost every program, they're going to have a synopsis 
read the synopsis before. You don't have to study it, but just have a general idea of what's coming. So you're not, wait, who is it? And trying to look in the dark, um, but look ahead or look online. The Royal Opera House uh, has all of their production information for, I think, the whole season. Um or have in past years. And so go ahead, just quickly look, but there is no wrong or right things to find with dance. You can, you could just, I have one friend, she's, I just enjoy looking at their feet. I don't look at anything else. I just look at their feet and that's fine because that's how she enjoys watching it. So I would just say to remember that there's not a right or wrong way to watch it, whatever you want. It's there for you. Jessica, thank you very much for sharing your knowledge and love of ballet. Thanks for having me again. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.